Amen. Thanks, team. Uh, turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we continue our study uh, through this letter of hope. Uh, just parenthetically, as you're finding uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, and remember, if you need to find it, uh, go eat popcorn, Colossians, and Thessalonians, and share some with Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Remember that? Okay. Go eat popcorn, G-E-P, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Go eat popcorn, Colossians, and Thessalonians, and share some with Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. You know the, all the letters of Paul now. I figured you know where Romans and 1 Corinthians are, so now you have a way to remember how to find 1 Thessalonians. As you're finding it, you'll notice that we're simply continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians. Now, some of you may be scratching your heads and saying, now, wait a minute, this is National Right to Life Sunday. This is Pro-Life Sunday. Why aren't you preaching on the sin of abortion? Well, the fact is, there are many years that I do, in fact, choose Right to Life Sunday to preach uh, on the sin of abortion and the need to be pro-life. However, there are also many years that I don't. And uh, that doesn't mean that we are any less committed to pro-life causes. It doesn't mean that we've waffled at all in our convictions regarding uh, the grave and uh, tragic sin of abortion. Uh, it simply means that sometimes uh, we believe that we need to preach pro-life all the time and not just one Sunday a year. And we also believe that pro-life is more than standing up against abortion, though it certainly includes that. It means also being committed to feed the hungry and make sure that the thirsty have water and to make sure the orphan and the widow are looked after and the alien and the refugee are cared for. So, all that to say, if you're wondering, is Bob no longer pro-life? Uh, rest easy. Um, yes, we are. But we're going to keep going in First Thessalonians and talk about hope. The reason why we're talking about hope is because as I meet with people on a daily basis, I am astounded at how so many of us are wrestling with sagging hope. We're all it's, it's, it's interesting that, that our, our devotional this week in the Blue Book is hunger and thirst. There, there are so many of us who are hungering and thirsting for hope. There, there just seems to be something about this world all the time, but particularly now in our cultural context, something about this world that is just sucking the hope out of people's souls. I don't know if you're familiar with J.K. Rowling. She's probably written the most successful fantasy series in the history of the world. Uh, it's called the Harry Potter series. And in book three, The Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, we're introduced to these wild characters called Dementors. Uh, Dementors are dark forces in the wizardry world. And when they get near anyone... They literally suck the hope out of their souls. They glory in despair. They seek to remove every happy memory you've ever had. And they remove all of the hopeful feelings you've ever experienced. 
and they seek to leave you with nothing but despair. Now, thankfully, dementors are not real. But they certainly feel like they are. If they were real, what would be some dementors in your life this morning? I mean, what's sucking the hope out of your life? Troubled marriage? Wayward children? Circumstances and situations of vocational struggle? Financial crisis? Health concerns? On and on and on. What's threatening to suck the hope out of your soul? Now, if you think about it, J.K. Rowling is actually not that far off. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and dark forces of wickedness in the spiritual and heavenly realms. And let me tell you something. Evil loves nothing more than to try to drain you of hope. It's really the first attack recorded in Scripture regarding evil on humanity. Genesis 3. Satan sought to tempt Eve in such a way that she lost hope. And when she lost hope in God, she was vulnerable and she gave into temptation. Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians, to people who were facing their own personal dementors and their hope is being threatened. And Paul writes to renew and restore and refresh their hope. And as we read these words, our hope is restored, renewed, and refreshed as well. So let's all stand in a reverence for God's word. Follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians. We're actually going to cover a few more verses this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 to 7. This is God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. Folks, this is God's very word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he actually longs to renew, 
restore, and refresh our hope. Let's pray. Father, I don't know uh, all the things that are threatening to, to steal our hope, drain us of hope, suck the hope out of us. But God, we do know there's only one place to find hope, and that is in you, our great God and Savior. So Holy Spirit, teach us and please fill us with hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So the first several verses of 1 Thessalonians 1 reveal three sources of renewed hope. We've covered two over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we have a podcast. Uh, you can download it. You can hear the sermons that you've missed. If you've missed them, uh, please go ahead and listen to those because it sets the context for the rest of the letter. But the first two sources of renewed hope that we've looked at so far is find renewed hope in the goodness of God's providence and secondly, find renewed hope in the sweetness of community. This morning... We're going to conclude this mini-series uh, from the introduction, Find Renewed Hope in the Fruitfulness of Grace. Now, at Oak Mountain, we have values, and one of our values is to be grace-driven. And we define what it means specifically for us to say that we're grace-driven. And that means that we proclaim the message of God's unconditional love as grace and we proclaim the message of God's supernatural transforming power as grace. So grace as love, grace as power. And for God to renew our hope, we need to be reminded of grace as love and grace as power. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So first of all, we find renewed hope in the fruitfulness of grace through Trinitarian love. Look at verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now last week when we talked about hope that is poured into our hearts through the sweetness of community, I emphasized just how unique it is that Paul begins his greeting by mentioning his companions right alongside him. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul never does that anywhere else. What he normally says is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Paul, sent by God through Jesus Christ, something like that, then to whomever he's writing. And then he says, and with me, those like Timothy, Silas, Sosthenes, whatever. So it's very unique that Paul begins with Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. But it continues in its uniqueness by what comes next. Very rare. It only occurs in Thessalonians, where he says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never says that anywhere else. Now, Paul commonly greets the church in his letters with to the church in Jesus Christ, to the church in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He does that constantly. But nowhere else, except for the second letter to Thessalonians, only in the Thessalonian correspondence does he say to the church in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And what he's saying is he's emphasizing the love of the Trinity over the church. You know, the triune God sings refrains. The triune God sings choruses. And they sing over us. Zephaniah 3.17. God sings over us with songs of joy. He loves us. You will never find a father on earth that loves a child the way the father loves us. And when Paul says we are the church in God the Father, he means that we are the church born again through the father's will. We are the church born again through the Father's love. We are the church that is adopted into God's family, and we have him as our Father. Romans 1.7 is the closest greeting we get to something of a church being in God the Father, where Paul writes to all those in Rome who are loved by God. When Paul wants to renew our hope, When Paul wants to restore our hope, if you want your hope refreshed, reflect deeply on God's love for you. Paul says in Ephesians 3, I pray that you would understand and comprehend and know existentially and experientially how high and how deep and how wide and how broad is the love of God for you. What Paul is describing there is an infinite cube. And being in God the Father means that we live and exist, if we know Christ, in the realm, in the sphere, in the infinitely expanding cube of the height, depth, width, and breadth of the love of the Father. In Romans 8, 39, Paul says... What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Can things present? Can things to come? Can peril, nakedness, sword? Paul says, no, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul emphasizes it again in verse 4. He says, for we know, brothers and sisters, Loved by God. But we're not just loved by God the Father. The greeting says to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Father, the first person of the Trinity, loves us. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, loves us. We are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Never will you find a father on earth who loves us like our father in heaven. And never will you find a friend on earth who loves you like Jesus. In John 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He laid down his life. So we are loved by a God who not only tells us about his father love, but he proves his father love in sending his son. And then the son, the second person of the Trinity, also proves his love by dying on the cross for us. 
And being in the Lord Jesus Christ means that our identity is found in union with Christ. In John 17, 23, Jesus prays that we might know that if we trust Christ, the Father loves us just as much as and just like he loves the Son. The first person of the Trinity loves the second person of the Trinity infinitely and eternally. And if we know Christ, we have the hope that we too are loved eternally and infinitely by the Father as well as by the Son. You see, if your identity is in your performance, then your hope is going to ebb and flow, be up and down based on your performance. But if your hope is in God's love, it is constant and it is unconditional. There's nothing you could do to ever cause God to stop loving you. And there's nothing you could ever do that could make God love you more than he already does. So we we rest in the Father's love. We rest in the Son's love. But look at verse 5. It says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Notice the three ins in this passage. We are in God the Father. We are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 5, we are in the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit's main work? Do you know? Romans 5.5. Paul says the Spirit pours out God's love in our hearts. The role of the Spirit is to convince us of the Father's love for us. So you have the Father loving us, the Son loving us, the Spirit loving us. That sounds like a foundation of hope, no matter what we're facing. Because the fact is, it often does feel like we're being pursued by dementors. And life gets discouraging. And we're tempted with hopelessness and despair. I had a dream the other night. I don't normally share my dreams. But this was, I don't know, wild enough that and it related to what we we're talking about. So I thought, I ought to share this. Maybe God gave it to me to share. In the dream, this was, uh, this was early Tuesday morning. In the dream, I was in a cafeteria. And there were a bunch of folks. I didn't see faces, but I saw people. And uh, I was talking to them. It almost felt like it was a church plant. And we were meeting in a cafeteria. And... Uh, what I was talking about was spiritual warfare. And I said, I don't think any of us realize just how intense and continuous spiritual warfare is. That the forces of darkness are hunting us all the time, every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year all the years of our lives. And then in my dream, I started weeping. And I could barely get the next words out, but the next words were through tears. How are any of us going to make it? 
And then the next words, I had an even harder time choking out through the tears. But I looked at the room and I said, the only way any of us is going to make it is by hoping in the love of the triune God for us. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Find renewed hope by resting and being refreshed by Trinitarian love. Secondly, we also find renewed hope in the fruitness of grace through Trinitarian power. Again, the measure, uh, I mean the value of, of Oak Mountain, grace-driven, one of the three values, grace-driven, the message of God's grace as unconditional love. We just covered that. Secondly, the message of God's grace as supernatural transforming power. And as we reflect upon the power of God in our lives, it gives us hope. Look at verse 1. Paul basically gives a benediction at the beginning. We're used to a benediction at the end of the service. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his countenance to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you your peace. Well, that's exactly what Paul says here at the beginning. Grace and grace to you and peace. So Paul, instead of waiting to the end of the letter to pronounce the benediction, he actually pronounces the benediction at the beginning of the letter. And it is just as if he is pronouncing the Levitical promise, the Levitical benediction of Numbers 6 that I just spoke to you. The Lord bless you with his love. The Lord keep you by his power. To keep means to preserve. It means to guard. It means to keep safe. It means to work around you and in you and through you for your good. Can you believe in the midst of all of the craziness that you're facing in life right now, those seeming dementors that are trying to suck the hope from you, can you believe that God is keeping you by his power? As Juan prayed that we've been born again to a living hope, imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven for us. And then the next verse, 1 Peter 1.5 says, we are kept by God's power. We persevere in hope and in grace because God's grace and power perseveres in us. In Acts 20, verse 32, the apostle Paul says, I now commend you to God's grace that is able to build you up. It is God's grace that builds you up. It's not you. It's not your efforts. It's not your discipline. It's not your resources. Nothing about you builds you up. Grace by God's power is what keeps us and builds us up. And that gives us hope. I lose hope when I think it all is up to me. I lose hope when I look at my failures. When I realize I should have done what I didn't do. Or I did what I shouldn't have done. But God says, remove yourself from the equation. I got you. I will keep you. My grace will persevere with you. Paul says in Acts 20, 32, I commend you to the grace that is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among the saints. In other words, you're going to make it. 
Whatever you're facing right now, you are going to make it. How can I be so confident? Because it doesn't depend upon you. I'm not looking at you and your resources when I'm saying you're going to make it. I'm looking at God's word, God's promise. God says you will make it by his power. He will make sure you make it. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work will bring it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. He, not you, he. That's something to get hopeful about, people. Amen? Man, who am I preaching to here? You know I'm kidding. In verse 2, there's another element of this hope in God's power. He says, we give thanks to God always for you. Why would you give thanks to God? Because God is the cause. That's why. You don't thank somebody unless they've done something. So Paul thanks God. He doesn't thank the Thessalonians. He thanks God for what is happening in the Thessalonians. Even the Thanksgiving reminds us We make it because his power is mightily at work toward us. How many times does Paul say something like that? He says, not only might you understand God's love for you, height, width, breadth, depth, but you might understand the working of his power, which is like the power he exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul says, that's the power. That is at work in you, in all of your struggles, in all of your problems, in all of your trials, in all of your difficulties. That kind of power is at work in you. Now you think, well, I don't feel that way. I don't sense it. It it actually doesn't matter if you feel it or sense it. Now, I mean, it matters. Like, I'm sorry that we don't always experience it. But as far as reality, it doesn't matter because God's power may not be sensed. And it still may be present. And then, you know, I've said we're talking about Trinitarian power. So we've got the power of, of, of God the Father. We've got the power that is given to us in Jesus Christ. Then in verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Again, Trinitarian power. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Look, I know in the presence of our dementors, we feel powerless. And in ourselves, we are. But we're never powerless if we know Christ. His power is always at work in us. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you that when you least feel God's power, it is likely most at work in you. I mean, that's what Paul says. Three times I asked, he'd remove from me the thorn of the flesh. Three times he said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. What comes next? For power is perfected in weakness. So the more weak you may feel, counterintuitively, the more God's power is actually likely present. I don't know about you, but there's something about that that sounds really hopeful. You know, the best way to picture this power of God that has us and holds us and propels us 
is in John 10 when Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. In John 10, 28, he says, I give eternal life to my sheep. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them from my hand. When the dementors are flying around, don't you feel you're barely hanging on? You're clinging by the fingertips to the cliff. You can barely hang on to Jesus. Jesus says, you got the whole illustration backwards. You don't hold me. I hold you. Remember when our children were little? Some of us are wrestling with that now, going through the parking lot or whatever, and they want to grab our hand or our fingers. And you learn early on as a parent, you never allow that. You never allow a child to grab your hand. You grab theirs because they can let go. You ain't letting go. And that's the hope you have as a believer in Christ with God as your Father and Jesus as your Savior and the Holy Spirit as your helper. Jesus says, I have them in my hand and no one can snatch them. But then he says the most curious thing in the next verse. In John 10, 29, he says, My Father is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of his hand. Well, wait a minute, Jesus. You didn't say the Father had us in your hand. You said you did. So the picture is of Jesus having us in his hand, and no one can snatch us out. And then all of a sudden, you got the Father's hand wrapped around the Son's hand. And oh, by the way, we're held in Jesus' hand by the power of the Spirit, who then wraps his hand, the Father then wraps his hand around Jesus and the Spirit. We're triple wrapped. Laura and I have a, one of those, you know, body freezers, and uh, we, we keep all kinds of meat there, and, and some, come on, what else do you call it? Okay, it's a really big freezer, and you could store a whole lot of meat in there, all right? Good grief, I, I didn't mean to offend anybody. What do you call those big coolers? I call it a body cooler. Anyway, now I even forget what I was going to say. So, so we have some meat that's like two years old. But you know what? We've, we've triple wrapped it in, in, in plastic wrap and tinfoil and bags. And, and, it, and it's great. It's been protected. Now, that's a silly illustration, but you are triple wrapped. I mean... If, if evil could get through the first layer, it can't. It'd have to face the second layer. And if e evil could get through the second, first two layers, it can't. It'd have to get through the third layer. You are held by the Son, by the power of the Spirit, and the power of the Father holds it all, and He is greater than all, and no one can snatch us out of His hand. My friend Dane Ortland said this, and I hope this gives you hope. We don't need smaller problems. We, we may prefer smaller problems, but we don't need smaller problems. We need a bigger Jesus. Find renewed hope in the fruitfulness of grace through Trinitarian love, Trinitarian power, and then lastly, find renewed hope in the fruitfulness of grace through Trinitarian gifts. Again, look at verse 3. It starts in verse 2 where Paul gives thanks. And then it says in verse 3, Remembering your work of faith and labor of love 
and steadfastness of hope. Again, why would Paul give thanks to God as he remembers their faith, love, and hope? Because they're gifts. They're not things you and I are called to work up. They're gifts we're to ask for. And when we ask for a fish, our Father will never give us a snake. When we ask for a loaf, our Father will never give us a stone. And when we ask for faith and love and hope, He will always give it to us. They're gifts. Why else would Paul give thanks to God for the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope? By the way, that's a triad that's repeated often in Paul's letters. Faith, love, hope. Faith, love, hope. First uh, Corinthians 13, you've heard it, weddings, right? These things remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Well, Paul uses faith, love, and hope, different order in, in this passage. At the end of the letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, he uses the same triad, faith, love, hope. In Colossians 1, verse 4, he uses the same triad, faith, love, hope. Numerous times, Paul uses this triad. They've been called the three cardinal virtues. Like you've heard of the seven deadly sins. Well, faith, love, and hope have been called the three cardinal virtues. Only in one sense, they're really not virtues. Because virtues means you've worked it up. Or you've disciplined yourself. Paul gives thanks to God for faith, love, and hope. There's so much hope when we recognize the grace of God that has promised us. The other thing that's clear in the Greek is that the first word is produced or caused by the second word. So your work of faith means your work produced by faith. Labor of love means labor prompted by love. Steadfastness of, of hope is steadfastness inspired by hope. Let's look at these real quickly. Uh, your, your work produced by faith. Now, isn't it interesting that, that two terms that are often in tension in many Christians' minds are actually gifts of grace, right? Faith and works. Paul says you're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, says we see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What's the answer? It's really simple. The gift of faith that God grants is a faith that is alive, and it produces fruit. Look, this is why we say that there's, there's no such thing as a true Christian who's not a committed disciple. That, that's impossible. People say, well, Bob, if you preach that, you're perilously close to preaching work salvation. No, I'm not. I'm exalting grace. What I'm saying is the grace of God is real. It's a powerful, it's, it's a power. It's not a concept. And when you've been touched by grace, you've been supernaturally changed. You've been born again. You've been resurrected. You've been given a faith that will produce fruit. Now, if there's no fruit, you do have cause for concern, people. You do. Look, doubting your salvation is not the worst thing that can happen to any of us in this room. 
Now, doubting your salvation for long, yeah, that matters. So let's say I've just, I've just upset your faith. Let's say you're doubting your salvation right now. What you do next reveals whether you're a Christian. Bob, I'm doubting my salvation. I better get busy. You may not be a Christian. If, if you're going to prove that you're a Christian by showing me better works, you may not be a Christian. But if in the midst of your doubt right now of am I a Christian, you say, oh, Christ, have mercy on my soul. Because I'm not sure I've got enough works. You are a Christian because you just showed me, and more importantly, yourselves, that where you went in the time of hopelessness was to Jesus, not to your performance, not to your fruitfulness, not to your works, but you went to Jesus. And here's the kicker. Here's the irony. Here's the thing that's so paradoxical. When you give up, and run to Jesus and say, oh, Christ, have mercy. That is the gift of faith that begins producing works. It's supernatural. It's a gift. And then Paul goes on to say, your labor prompted or motivated by love. Now, is it my love for Christ that prompts my labor and suffering for other Christians? Or... Is it Christ's love for me that motivates and prompts and inspires love for others? Well, it's clearly the latter. Okay, here's, a, here's a, another verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. The love of Christ controls us. Now, see, in the Greek, it's pretty clear. In the English, it's not. The love of Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean my love for Christ? Is that the love of Christ? Or is it Christ's love for me? Well, it's the latter. Christ's love for us compels us, energizes us, propels us. So as we consider and reflect upon God's love for us and Christ's sacrificial love for us, it then motivates and compels us to love one another. And as we love one another, we become the incarnational love of God to each other and we fill each other with hope. This gift of understanding and comprehending God's love for us produces a lifestyle of love. As a matter of fact, it's body life. Ephesians 4.16 says, as each part does its own work, the body builds itself up in love. And when we build ourselves up in love together, we also build ourselves up in hope. And then lastly, the steadfastness or endurance or perseverance inspired by hope. Now, hope is a happy expectation and anticipation of good based on who God is, what his word promises, and thirdly, the incarnation, birth, life, suffering, death, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and return of Christ. 
The reason why we persevere, the reason why we're steadfast, is not because circumstances that we're in right now are going to change. There's no guarantee, folks. There isn't. I can't guarantee you that any of the dementors that you're facing that are circumstances and relationships are going to change. I can promise you that God can give you hope that cannot be stolen from you in the midst of all the trial and trouble and difficulty you're facing. And the ultimate hope for the Christian, Paul says here, is not here. I'm so sorry in some ways. But your hope is not in this life. My hope is not in this life. We got made too many Christians thinking that our hope is in this life. It's not. And and if you tried to preach that to 99% of the world, they'd look at you like you're crazy. It's only Americans with our affluence that would ever think that we're supposed to find hope in this world. Now, we can have hope in Christ all through everything in this world, knowing that Jesus is on his way, and one day everything that is wrong will be put right, and everything we ever hoped to experience here will experience in the new Jerusalem in ways infinitely beyond what we ever could have expected. It's interesting in Harry Potter, when there's a Dementor sucking the hope out of somebody, there is an antidote. The antidote is called the Patronus charm. And the spell that is uttered is expecto patronum. It's Latin. And what it means is, I expect or wait upon my father. And the charm would conjure up something that was a source of great hope and happy feelings for whomever the spell was uttered. In this case, truth is more beautiful than fantasy. Because Jesus is the one who charms our fears. Jesus is the one who says, Come, ye poor and needy. Remember that hymn that we sing in this church? Come, ye sinners, poor and needy. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Expecto Patronum. That's our hope. I expect my Father to show up. I expect Jesus to show up. I expect the Holy Spirit to show up. And that is my hope. Let's pray. God, we need you to show up. Well, actually, God... (laughs) What we need are eyes that see that you're always showing up. God, there's never a moment where you're not showing up. Would you convince us of that by your spirit? There, in, in, in our feelings of being most abandoned, we are trusting in false feelings. We have been hoodwinked and tricked 
by the devil. There's never a moment when you do not embrace us in, our, in your arms. And so, God, we pray, open our eyes to your love. Open our eyes to your power. Open our eyes to the gifts of grace that are ours that will always produce fruit and that you who began a good work in us will bring it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. God, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know Jesus, would you lovingly convince them they have no hope? None. Their hope is an illusion. And that today you would open their eyes and they would run into the arms of Jesus, along with the rest of us who are poor and needy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Hear the benediction, the promise of God's favor, power, love. The benediction that's at the beginning of Thessalonians, that's at the end of our service. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord, Lord turn his countenance upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and